This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. So welcome to the Gospel of Mark as we begin a new liturgical year this Advent. We transition from Matthew, who provided us with most of our Gospel readings this past year, to Mark, from whom we will be hearing the good news on most Sundays in the year to come. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and almost all scholars now agree that his was the first to be written, probably some 35 to 40 years after Jesus' death. Mark is important for this reason alone. Of all the Gospels, he gets us closest in time to Jesus' life and ministry. Now, we know next to nothing about who wrote Mark, some scholars speculate that he may have been the John Mark who appears in the 12th chapter of Acts as a traveling companion to St. Paul. Another early church historian suggests that the writer may have been a friend of Peter's. The truth is that there is not enough evidence to confidently say much at all about the author of the gospel we call Mark, except that we can be thankful that he wrote it. What we can tell from the text itself, which is not especially elegantly written, is that the author was not well-educated. His Greek is simple, sometimes even clumsy, without ornamentation. His transitions are often abrupt, and there is an urgency that runs throughout his gospel, his favorite word being immediately. As the writer Frederick Beekner puts it, Mark is a man in a hurry, out of breath, with no time to lose because that's how the people were he was writing for. The authorities were out for their blood and they were on the run. We tend to forget just how dangerous it was to be a Christian in first century Palestine what courage it required to place one's faith in Christ, 
and to publicly say as much. And this was particularly so around the time Mark is writing his gospel, which coincides roughly with the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So perhaps it is not surprising after all that Mark leaves out much that we find in the later three Gospels. Notice, for example, how Mark begins. In contrast to Matthew and Luke, Mark tells us nothing about Jesus' birth or his family history. There are no angels visiting Mary and Joseph, no shepherds, no manger scene, no star guiding wise men to the infant child. Nor is Mark like John, who begins his gospel with a sophisticated theological reflection on the word made flesh. Rather, Mark begins with alarm bells. Right off the bat, he takes us into the wilderness where, without warning, we meet a vaguely crazy character named John the Baptizer, dressed in camel's hair reminiscent of Elijah, and munching on locusts and wild honey, John is a frightening figure whose role quite clearly is to get our attention. Wandering the Judean countryside, John cries out to anyone willing to listen, and his message is as stark as his appearance. God is coming. Prepare the way. Long before Twitter, John the baptizer knew needed only a few words to communicate your message. John the Baptist's words, of course, are not his alone. They are echoes from the past. John is borrowing his cry from the prophet Isaiah, who wrote six centuries before John even appeared. Isaiah's circumstances were different in many respects, yet the same in others. In 587 BC, Babylonian armies destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and sent the inhabitants of Judah into a long and miserable exile. It is during that exile that Isaiah writes his beautiful entreaty to God that we heard in our first lesson and opening hymn, Comfort, O comfort my people, he pleads. Isaiah's hope and prayer is that God will return his people from exile, restore Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. And to underscore this prophecy, Isaiah writes that a voice will cry out from the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert a highway for our God, for the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And in the meantime, Isaiah urges the people, get you to a high mountain, lift up your voices with strength, for God will feed his flock like a shepherd, he will gather his lambs in his arms. I love these words from Isaiah 40. I love them for their beauty and power, and I loved them because they were written to a community of people who had run out of options for the future and had given up hope. Their situation could not have been more difficult. Their capital was in ruins, 
Their leaders had either been slaughtered or exiled, their temple leveled, and they were held captive in a foreign land in squalid ghettos. I have always imagined those exiled people spending most of their time remembering the good old days, how it used to be in Jerusalem when David and Solomon were kings, when their army was feared, when there was food enough for all, and when the whole world marveled at Jerusalem's temple, the glory of Israel, bright, gleaming in the sun, Solomon's gift to the whole world. And yet, such nostalgia for the past is emphatically not Isaiah's message. For if you read on in chapter 40 and the chapters that follow, after his words of comfort and after his admonition to prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah then tells his people that while the Lord is indeed coming, there will be no return to the glory days of yesteryear, for God is in fact doing a new thing, making a new creation. What we have to prepare for, Isaiah says, is not a return to the past but a new future with new possibilities. There is in these words of Isaiah a very important insight about the nature of faith and its relationship to time. You see, our God is a God of promise, a God who is always looking forward a God who is always creating, surprising, and providing hope. When our resources are depleted, God's are not. When we've used up all our options, God has more. When we've given in to despair, God quietly takes our hand and leads us forward. Faith in this way of thinking, is not looking backward, but looking ahead. Not sitting around the fire telling stories about how grand the good old days were, but being willing to join God in the ongoing drama of creative renewal. And this is the very same message that John the Baptist is giving his followers. When John urges them to repent, he is not merely inviting them to come clean about the mistakes of their past. More than that, more importantly, he is urging them to open their eyes to the new way of being in the world that God wants for them. The Greek word that underlies repent is metanoia, which more literally means turn around, change direction, Follow the new path that God is showing you. And the person to whom John the Baptist is pointing, the person who will show them this new way, who will show us this new way, is none other than Jesus. The coming of God's Son into the world changes everything. God will no longer reside in a temple in Jerusalem, but has in fact become human, so that in the person of Christ, God can make himself fully present to all people through the mysteries of word, sacrament, 
and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Implicit in today's words from Isaiah and John the Baptist is a crucial teaching about how God's people should relate to the past. To be sure, we remember the past, we honor the past, and we learn from it. Yet we do not cling to it, for God is always moving forward. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, in his book The Theology of Hope, explains it this way. He says, quote, there are two ways of looking at time. Is the source of time behind us, pushing us from history into the future? Or is the source of time ahead of us, pulling us out of history into the future, so that the present always has within it the seeds of hope and a glimpse of God's desired destiny for us? Think of what that may mean for the church, for this church. Instead of wringing our hands over the dreadful state of the church's so-called decline and how things aren't the way they used to be, the prophetic words we hear today from both Isaiah and John the Baptist are urging us instead to turn around, to watch for the new thing God is doing, and to prepare ourselves for its coming to live loosely with the past in order not to miss God's ongoing process of creative and renewing change, which has always been God's manner of acting. My goodness, Lutherans of all people should know this. Our God is a constantly reforming God. He never leaves us the same. Now, I very much believe that God is doing a new thing at Holy Trinity right before our very eyes, now and in the coming months and years. It won't be like the past, exactly, yet I am confident our future will be abundant and rich and full of promise, no doubt in some startling and unexpected way. And the urgent message of today's lessons is that we must be on the lookout for this new thing, ready with open hearts and open minds so that we are prepared to welcome this God of ours who never, ever fails us and never, ever fails to surprise and delight. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.